I found out like an hour ago it was actually the Super Bowl today. I had, I had no idea whatsoever. That's how much of a football fan I am. I'm glad that you guys are here. You're going to want to raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. Our usher team is going to come around and we're going to continue our series in Luke's gospel today. I just want to start off today and give you guys a quick update. Our beloved pastor guy, founder of River West Church, is currently wrapping up his time in, in Myanmar, flying back uh, from spending a week training leaders in Southeast Asia in the country of Myanmar, equipping them, the leaders of leaders, that will go into the country and raise up the next generation of church planters. And it has been an incredible week. There are some great stories to come, but I just wanted to share, preview here, some pictures. That's Pastor Guy in front of the Patiama Youth Development Center. The, the building was paid for by funds here from River West, right there. First photo. That four-store building is going to be used to actually train up older students to not only conduct vocational training um, so that, that many times folks that work in factories, men and women, are taken advantage of uh, in factories that are lined around Patiama, this district in Yangon. They're going to use it as an outreach center, but also a training center for leaders, and they're going to conduct church services in the upper story as well. Incredible. Um, some other photos here. Here is, is Pastor Guy with no poom there on his left, and an incredible uh, pastor in Myanmar. His name is Pastor Coop right there, very humble man. Uh, another photo here, we have Darren, our brother and partner from a church called Imprint up in Seattle, the former youth pastor here at River West ages ago, up in front teaching leaders there. And one final picture, this is my favorite right here. So no poom, when he went into the building, one of his dreams was to have a coffee maker. And when we would bring teams to bring Portland coffee. So I've been told each day before Guy and Darren taught, uh, no poom would be over there, you know, like grinding up beans and making coffee so that the guy who was a coffee addict could be fueled as he was teaching the word. It's so sweet. What I love about that picture right there, though, is think about this. This man, no poom, is one of the smartest, sharpest leaders I've ever met in my entire life. The dreams that God has given him, when you're around him, you can't help but be inspired. He speaks seven different languages fluently, travels around the country, empowering hundreds of leaders. And yet this man, when I'm in his presence, one word always comes to mind, humility. He embodies it. And so when I'm around him, I'm like magnetized in. I want to come close and I want to understand the way that he understands Jesus has translated into this humble life that is so compelling that wherever he goes, there's a healing power and presence through his life that impacts others. You know, I don't know about you, but when I spend time around truly humble leaders, where there's an absence of ego, no self-aggrandizement when you're around them, it makes me want to be a better version of myself, to put the needs 
of others before my own self-interests and ambitions. To seek God's kingdom more than I so often seek my own comfort or my own recognition. In short, being around humble leaders makes me want to be more like Jesus, the ultimate humble leader in human history. I love this quote. This is one of my my favorite books um, devotionally. It's a book called Humility by Andrew Murray. Uh, My wife got me this book on humility years ago. She loves this. (laughs) Your wife gives you a book on humility. Men, just take that as a subtle hint that you have some work to do. But I I love this quote. Listen to this. This description of Jesus. He writes, Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. He is eternal love humbling itself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win, serve, and save us. Friends, that's the Jesus that we have been learning about, emulating, loving, as we have been studying Luke's gospel together. The humility of God embodied in a human, a man from Nazareth named Jesus Christ. Today, as we continue this quest in Luke's gospel, To follow Jesus, we're going to unpack another story where Jesus is invited over for dinner by a prominent religious leader. There's a lot of dinner stories in Luke's gospel. And as this dinner, this curious dinner unfolds and the sparks fly, as they typically do, (laughs) Jesus is going to use this occasion to teach us as his disciples a vitally important lesson on humility that's just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago when this gospel was penned. In fact, quite honestly, I believe deep down that Christ's vision of this humble life that we're going to see together today may very well be what our desperately divided, ego-amped, me-always-first culture needs more than anything else today is this vision of a humble life. So with that, turn to Luke 14, and we'll drive right into this provocative passage where Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, is going to dish up some humble pie to these pious religious leaders in Luke 14. It's amazing. We'll start in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, 
having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day would not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, he said to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is God's word. If you're taking notes this morning and you want some categories of thinking for what Jesus is developing in this passage, there's three things that we're going to explore and mine from this passage. We're going to see three things. The healing power of humility. That's what we're going to see first and foremost, the healing power that humility brings. Secondly, the human predicament with humility. What keeps us from living as humble people? We have a predicament. And lastly and finally, the gospel incentive for humility. What would motivate us to live this way of humility that Jesus puts before us. So the healing power of the human predicament and the gospel incentive for humility. First, we see in this story the healing power of humility through Jesus' encounter with this man that has dropsy in this passage. Now, the term dropsy is unintelligible to most of us because it's not a commonly used medical term today, but it referred to a condition where a person's arms or legs or sometimes their belly would swell up with fluid. It was a very painful condition where a person's extremities, in most cases, would swell up and they could be impressed and indented. And this person would live in chronic pain, being tortured by their own body. So whatever the case, this man's condition, he's suffering constantly, and he's there at this party in the home of this prominent ruler of the Pharisees before Jesus arrives. In fact, what's interesting and somewhat peculiar in this story that most commentators hone in on is the language of the text suggests, at least, 
that this man may have been placed and planted by the religious leaders as a test to see if Jesus would heal this man on the Sabbath Sabbath, and therefore violate what they believe were laws from the Torah prohibiting work to be done on the Sabbath. Now, for those of you that have been following along in Luke's gospel, you know at this point in Luke, Jesus has earned a reputation by this point for being a rule-breaking Sabbath rabbi. He's a rule-breaking rabbi. And in particular, we've seen stories where Jesus has healed people on the Sabbath and it's caused controversy. We saw this kind of story back in chapter 13. If you remember Jesus' encounter with the woman with the disabling spirit that Adam preached on a couple weeks ago, when Jesus stretched out his hand and healed this woman, Luke tells us that the religious leader was indignant, was furious that Jesus would have the audacity to break one of their Sabbath rules and heal this woman, completely disregarding the miracle and the woman that was liberated and released from this disabling spirit. Jesus, in response to the calloused heart and the posture of this pious crowd, back in chapter 13, we read Jesus' response in verses 15 and 16. Just a quick recap. Jesus addresses the religious leaders and says, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because here in chapter 14, in today's passage, Jesus is addressing this same smug, uncaring, legalistic attitude, and he's exposing the cold, callous hearts of the leaders that have invited Jesus over for dinner. So I want you to imagine the scene. The proud, pious, religious crowd have crafted this occasion and this evening to see if they could trip Jesus up, see if they can catch him breaking another rule. So they they come up with this plan to take a man that's desperate, lives with chronic suffering, and use him as a pawn in their little charade. So Jesus shows up. The man is there. And Luke tells us in verse 1 in chapter 14, everyone is watching Jesus carefully. All eyes are on Jesus, and the room is silent. The trap is set. And there they wait, smugly, Silently, waiting for the moment that Jesus will step across the line, heal this man, so that they can take Jesus down and destroy him. So much arrogance filling their hearts. 
Not a care in the world for this man. This man, as pain is coursing through his swollen body, he makes eye contact with Jesus and Christ's heart. He can't take it any, any longer. So he cuts through the chase. He ends the religious charade. And he looks at the religious leaders and he poses a straightforward, plain-as-day question. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Luke tells us they didn't know how to respond. In verse 4, we we read the silence. There's a lot of silence going on. It remains silent. And right in that silence, the trap that these religious leaders have set for Jesus is actually sprung on their own arrogant, uncaring hearts. Deep down, everyone in the room knows what the just, merciful thing to do is. It's just that everyone's too proud to admit that they're wrong. So while everyone in the room keeps silence, arrogantly waiting, For Jesus to break a law, Christ stretches out his hand and relieves this man's suffering. Read it again. Look at this encounter here in verses 4 to 6. He says, then he took him. It's an embracing word. He took him unto himself, healed him, and sent him away. And said to them, the religious Leaders, which of you, having a son or even an ox that's fallen into a well, will not immediately pull him out? And Luke tells us they could not conjure up a reply to these things. As we've been learning in Luke's gospel, This poignant story and this healing, like all of Christ's miracles in Luke, it points to a deeper gospel truth. And here's the truth I believe Luke wants us to see in this story. Christian humility always leads to healing. Humility leads to healing. There is no healing in our world, in our community, in our lives, apart from humility. Think of it. This healing of this man with dropsy would have never happened if Jesus was filled with the same kind of smug, self-important attitude and pride we see in the religious leader. No, the only reason that this man in the story was healed was Christ was willing to humble himself in front of this haughty crowd to stoop down and to embrace the suffering of this man. In fact, the picture that Christ gives us of what's really happening on an emotional level, but even deeper at a spiritual level, it's like Christ is is operating as a loving father reaching down, stooping down into a well to rescue out a son 
that's fallen into a well. That's the portrait that Jesus gives is rescue is happening right now in these religious leaders because of their arrogance and their pride. They're completely blind to the miracle of grace happening in this story. This is a picture, friends, of gospel humility, of a love that places the needs of others before our own. In River West, when God wants to heal anything that is broken in our world, he will always raise up a humble leader. Think of it. Think of the leaders that God raises up in the scriptures that bring healing, that bring liberation. Leaders like David humbled before God. Moses spent a lot of time hanging out with sheep. Think of it. Paul, I must show the apostle Paul how much he must suffer and be humbled before he can make my known my name known among the Gentiles. Peter. Well, Peter never left the class of humility with Christ. <laughs> time and time again, we see Peter doing face plants. You know, in, in the Bible, what's happening? God is raising up a humble leader and a pastor that can be a conduit of healing to others. Think of it. Just consider some of the greatest leaders in history that healed Oppressive systems that rolled back injustice in our broken world. Leaders like Nelson Mandela, leaders like Mother Teresa, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr., Dorothy Day, they all have one virtue in common humility. When God wants to heal our world, He raises up a humble heart what he does. It's what he always does. But contrary to what some assume about humility or being humble, true humility is not just sitting back idly and silently minding your P's and Q's while oppressive systems go on. Turning a blind eye to injustice, not speaking up, sitting silent like the religious leaders and the dinner guests in the story. Rather, true humility, gospel humility, fills us with courage to stoop, suffer, and when necessary, even upset unjust social norms in order to heal brokenness. That's the kind of humble leader that Jesus was and is, my friends. That is the humble the kind of humble leader that I so long to be as a pastor and River West, that is the kind of church that I believe Jesus has called us to be as a community. Amen? Amen. But here's the problem. It's extremely hard to live humbly in our selfie world. It's getting harder and harder. This central virtue in the Christian life that actually gives life to all other Christian virtues, humility. There's no way to grow as a follower of Jesus 
apart from humility. It's getting harder and harder to live humbly. I don't know about you. Maybe this is just a predicament for me. But some days I wake up arrogantly, mistakenly believing that life is a movie about me. I'm in every scene. I am. I'm in, it's weird. I'm in every single scene. You all thought that life was a movie about you, but it's not. You're extras in my scene. No, seriously. It's so silly and arrogant, but if we were being honest, sometimes these, these eyes that act like cameras, it deludes us into thinking that life is a movie about us. There's no empirical evidence whatsoever to support that. But we emotionally and then spiritually through our experience, live self-absorbed lives like we're the center of the world, which begs the question, a humble question. How in the world do you walk humbly in a world where everyone is consumed with their own personal quest for honor, recognition, and status? Thank the Lord for Luke chapter 14 and the courage of Jesus to shine light on our human predicament. Pride. That's what we see in this story is Jesus is going to show us the human predicament of pride and how it keeps us from living out this vision of a humble life. We see how Jesus gets after this and a typical Jesus way is through a parable and it's brilliant. I love it. It's in verses 7 to 11. Let's read those again. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, Now, when you're invited by somebody to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place, or some translations say the lowest seat. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so the lowest seat, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be humbled exalted. This is so good. I love this. This is like one of my favorite, favorite Jesus stories in the New Testament. So as this dinner is is getting underway, Jesus is going to teach this lesson about how life in the kingdom of God is, is diametrically opposed to how our world gives out seating arrangements, gives out honor and recognition how power works in the context of relationships. And Jesus does this through pointing out where everyone is seated at the table. So in Jesus' day, the table would have been much lower to the ground than our tables, and everyone would have been reclining at this table, but there was probably many guests at this table, and it was in the shape of a U, most likely, because this is how dinner tables are set up when you're, you're giving 
a grand dinner, hosting a dinner in your home, you would set tables up in the shape of the U with the host sitting at the head of the table and on their right and left would be the seats of honor at the head of the table. And then everyone else would sit at the table and take their place. And as you get to the ends of the table, those would be the lowest places or the lesser seats. And the seats of honor would be on the right and the left of the host. So Jesus, Jesus Luke, Luke, Luke tells us that he notices that the dinner guests that show up, they're all vying and competing for the good seats, the seats of honor. And he says, when you show up to a dinner, don't immediately seek out the seat of honor, the good seat. Instead, go sit at the kitty table. <laughs> sit at the lower seat because when, when the host shows up, they may see you sitting in a lesser seat and in front of, of everyone actually honor you and put you in a better seat. But if you show up and you always seek out the best seats for yourself, be warned because you might be humiliated and put to shame when the host comes, sees you sitting in the best seat and moves you and puts you at the kitty table at the Thanksgiving meal. That's Jesus' story. It's absolutely amazing. There's no doubt in my mind why it was awkward and silent. This was a slam dunk for Jesus exposing the proud characteristic of these leaders who always were looking for opportunities to exalt themselves and get recognition and honor from people. So Jesus' whole point of this lesser seat parable is this, friends. If you humble yourself, God will honor a humble heart. You'll be exalted. But if you exalt and honor yourself, be warned that you will be humbled. This is the same gospel principle that Adam preached on last week in chapter 13 when Jesus said, and behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last in the kingdom of God. God honors and exalts humble leaders who take the lesser seat and put others before their own self-interest. But gospel humility is not self-loathing either. God actually honors and exalts and lifts up humble people. So I love this quote by the ever-quotable pastor Tim Keller. He puts it so well. He puts so many things well. We quote him all the time around here. He says this about humility. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Think of this and think of the freedom possible in your life. If you thought of yourself less, you'd have more room in your life to be mindful of God and others. So it's not thinking less of yourself. It's actually not insecurity. It's not self-loathing. It's actually thinking rightly of yourself and being freed to think of yourself less. 
And whenever this attitude is employed in our life, it leads to flourishing relationship. In marriage, in business, whenever this attitude is put into practice, things grow, people are lifted up, and it always leads to a surprising healing power released into community. There's a book called Good to Great by an author, Jim Collins, that went about investigating how some companies that were good, successful companies rocketed into meteoric success, not through the innovation of some tech or app that overnight launched the company into success, but something about the culture of these companies took them from being good companies to actually being the kinds of of companies that set industry standards and outperformed other companies. So in this book, Good to Great, he went around and he interviewed the CEOs and the leaders of these companies, and he identified in the companies that experienced this kind of dramatic growth, went from good to great and unstoppable, the thing that he noticed is is that they were all led by leaders that simply cared more about the success of the organization than their own ego and personal success. Cared more about the success of others and the success of the organization more than their own personal ambition, ego, and success. That's what the book was setting out to prove. But that attitude, whenever it's employed, it actually causes things to flourish relationally. It's almost as if God has hardwired our relationships in such a way that whenever humility is practiced, things flourish. So how do we do this? Here's some practical ways that you can take the lesser seat in your relationships, and all of them are really hard. So the first practical thing that you can do is listen more and talk less. Some of you just need to write that down and just go about practicing that. That's like the one thing that you can do that will actually change the dynamic in your relationships. Instead of always having to air your own opinion and thoughts or to project and remind others of how important you are, simply go around making it your aim and ambition in your day to listen more than you talk. It's really convicting as a pastor to give you that advice because I don't live that out consistently. And I'm up here doing a lot of talking right now. (laughs) Pastor Adam is a great listener. And it's really convicting being around him because I am not. And I love that about our pastor. About our pastors here at River West. There's a lot of great listeners. And this is an area in my life that I ask the Lord for help with because it's been a real weakness and it's caused a lot of harm in my relationships when I don't do it well. But that's just me. That probably doesn't apply to any of you at all. How about this, the second one? Be really quick to own mistakes you've made. Be quick to own when you actually hurt someone, you sin against someone, 
The Bible tells us to go to that's that harm that we've done in our relationship and take ownership of it. Nothing embodies humility more than forgiveness. Christian forgiveness is the act of humility in action. But do it quickly. Be quick to forgive, the scriptures tell us. And so that's, again, something that requires a lot of practice in our lives. Or how about this? Serve others without seeking recognition. Absolutely impossible to do if you're posting all your good works on Instagram. (laughs) Really hard. How do you live out the virtue of Christian humility in a culture where we're constantly projecting or trying to convince others that we're really, really, really good, nice people? Maybe take a break from your social media, or be mindful of what you broadcast and why you're actually sharing that? Is it to inspire good in others, or is it to remind others that you're actually really rad and you're a good person and you're kind and you're Christian and you have your life together? Once again, maybe that just applies here, but those are maybe some practical things that you could work out with Jesus in your life. Now, what is interesting in the New Testament is all of Paul's letters. So Pastor Paul, as he's writing to the churches, they always involve these really practical pleas for God's people and the church to practice humility with one another. Case in point, take this passage, a very convicting passage, from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, This, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That is really, really, really convicting. How many of you go around and when you look at people, you're constantly saying in your own heart, you're more significant than me. You're more significant than me. Your needs matter. Your interests matter, not just mine. Seriously, who lives this way? Who goes around with this attitude and this disposition in their heart? Okay, my wife, Julie, does most of the time. And those that know her actually know that's true. And it's really annoying to fight with a humble person because you never win. Because by the time that you actually are ready to make your case, you realize that you're proud and you're selfish. And so repentance sets in before a word comes out, typically. But maybe, maybe some of you live this out. But for most of us, I think humility is, is really, really, really hard to live out. To count others more significant, to not only be concerned with our own interests, but the interests of others. So what can set selfish people free? Liberate us to love others without expecting anything in return. Folks, the only thing and the only powerful thing that can change us from the inside out and turn selfish people into humble servants is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Only the gospel. It's why Jesus 
ends actually by, by bringing us back to this gospel incentive for humility in this passage. And he does that in verses 12 and 14. So if you'll look at that, I want you just to hone in and just pay prayerful attention to what Jesus does in this picture. Because it's really a picture of a gospel community. People that have been moved by by a power of humility in their lives. Look at this. In verses 12 to 14, Jesus ends this whole dinnertime discourse and says, he said also to the men who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or neighbors or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Throughout Luke's gospel, Luke is focused on Christ's heart for the poor, for the marginalized, for the social outcast of his day. From the very beginning of Luke's gospel, Christ's mission, we're told, is to scatter the proud but to lift up and receive the humble. In fact, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Go back on this day and read Mary's song in chapter one when she sang how this humble child that she would give birth to would scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and bring down the mighty from their thrones how he'd exalt those of humble estates and fill the hungry with good things while the rich are sent away empty. How would this child do that? Through growing up and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Taking his life and pouring it out in humility so that you and I could be welcomed to his table. That is the Christian gospel. That you and I were so utterly selfish and sinful that God had to send his son Christ to redeem us and set us free from our sins. But now we are loved and accepted by a God who is so good and so lavish that we all are welcomed in to forever dine and have a place in his kingdom at which no one can repay, no one can afford. That is the Christian gospel. That through Christ's humility and his death on a cross, you and I are welcomed. A community that gets that, if you want to know what it looks like, Jesus shows us. This is what happens when a community actually embraces this message of a God humbling himself and begins to pray, Lord, make us into humble people. Evangelism just explodes out of this community. It's a picture of evangelism, of a party being thrown where all of it are invited and none can repay. So those with means and those without means, the poor, the crippled, and the blind, this gospel invitation going into our world and everyone coming together into a meal that they could never afford, that is what we celebrate through the death of Jesus. Amen? May it be in this community 
River West, can you imagine what would happen if we took Jesus' words literally this year? And we not only invited people in our home that esteem us and like us, but we actually did what Jesus said, and we welcomed people into our lives and showed hospitality to those that desperately need hope and need to hear about Jesus. It'd be one heck of a party. And may it be in this community. But it will never happen, and we will never see revival apart from us becoming humble people. So that's where I believe the Lord is taking us. The worship team is going to come up here this morning. We're going to respond by coming to the table, taking up the bread and the cup. And as we prepare our hearts to lift up these words and praise Christ who humbled himself, I just want to read from Philippians chapter 2, the rest of this passage on Christ's humility. And I want you, if you feel comfortable, just to close your eyes. Close your eyes. Quiet your hearts before the Lord and allow this vision of Jesus to sink in to your heart this morning. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul writes, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being formed in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Father, this morning, with our hearts bowed before you, we recognize, Lord, our salvation is possible because you are the God who stooped. You came down in Christ, reaching into our well of sin and selfishness that none of us could have climbed out of. You show us what humility looks like embodied, lived out. And Father, we repent and confess together that we are so often tempted to spend our days arrogantly putting ourselves in the best seats. Teach us how to make room for others, Lord, at your table. Shape us and form us into a humble people so that, Lord, your gospel can go out into unprecedented ways and more can be welcomed in. That's our hope. That's our prayer. We realize to see that happen, it will take us humbly crying out and saying, Lord, have mercy on us. Help us, Lord, make us into humble people like Jesus. And all of God's friends said, Amen.